I don't know how to say this, so I'll just say it. It is an unparalleled privilege to serve the living and true God with every one of you week after week, to worship him alongside all of you. And there is a scripture I'd like to start off with this morning that speaks directly to my heart, and I believe speaks directly to our topic for this morning before we even get started, and that is Psalm 119, verse 30. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you have them, to Psalm 119, verse 30, and it says this, I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. Immediately, we can see that a choice has been made. Not just any choice, the right choice. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. So we are told that choices matter. But what does every good choice require? A specific skill, discernment. But where did the psalmist turn for this discernment? I set your rules before me. He turned to the authority of God's word. We are living in an age when discernment is so needed, aren't we? Praise the Lord. He has given us what we need in order to make meaningful choices. Would you bow with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is this morning to come together to worship you. And we thank you that your church is not a building. Rather, it is a group of people who have received you as Savior and Lord, purchased by the precious blood that you shed on the cross. You saved us. Lord Jesus, will you help us now as we study your word together to have a better grip as to what it means to live a life that honors you. For it's in your precious name and for your sake we pray this. Amen. I was talking to my friend the other week about what it takes to make good dads. And we shared our thoughts with each other about how difficult this job really is. And he said something to me that stuck with me to this very day. He said this, that he knew that when his children grew up and went out into the world, he knew they would be influenced by our culture. It was not a matter of if, but when they would be influenced, and that when this happened, it was imperative that he be available to help them navigate whatever situation would arise. And I understand what my friend is saying. We really do live in a culture of influence. And as concerned dads, our cares were the same, that we would learn how to teach our children how to make good choices on their own. So I think parents in particular feel the gravity of this because we understand that the decisions our children make can be for their benefit or for their harm. And we understand that the decisions that our children make can have lasting implications as to their relationship with us. I wonder if this is how God feels about his church who is called to be in the world, but not of the world. See, our text today addresses a church in a culture of powerful influence. You see, God wanted the church in Pergamum to understand that the decisions they made mattered to him, and that decisions they made had, had lasting implications as to their relationship with him. 
Our passage this morning is found in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, and starting with verse 12, this is the letter from the risen Jesus Christ himself to the church in Pergamum. Verse 12 starts, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, first, a word on Pergamum, which was a spectacular city. It was located in Asia Minor, or what we call modern-day Turkey. And what was so spectacular about this city was a group of sacred buildings built into the tip of a cone-shaped hill that rose 1,300 feet above the major city. These sacred temples, these buildings were dedicated to Greek gods, and these were the influences of the day. We can look at them very briefly. First, we have Zeus. You might remember him. He's the guy that has the lightning bolt in his hand. He was known as the king of kings or the supreme ruler of all creation. His temple was the place that people went to in search for power. Demeter was the goddess of agriculture. People would pray to her hoping that she would send rain on their crops so that they could have food. People would go to her for provision. Her Latin name was Sirius, from which we get the word cereal from. Dionysius, the god of wine, the god of theater, and the god of debauchery in general. He was the god of the party. People went to him for pleasure. Athena was the patron goddess. She would give strategies, especially military strategies, so people would go to her for worldly wisdom. Asclepius was the god of healing. His temple was actually the hospital of the city. Think the Cleveland Clinic of the ancient world. That was this temple. His symbol was a serpent woven around a staff. If that sounds familiar, you've seen it on ambulances and hospitals. This is the origin of that image. This really highlights what the city was going through. I'm thinking about my son, my eight-year-old boy, if he was sick and dying, and in my humanness, I think this hospital is the best place this kid has a chance of surviving, and I want it, but in order to take him there, I have to pay homage to the god of Asclepius, and I'm a Christian. No wonder Jesus called it Satan's throne. All of this centered around the worship of a human being. Who was that? Caesar Augustus. Because Pergamum was the first city allowed by the Roman Emperor Caesar himself to erect a temple that would honor him as a living God. 
power, provision, health, advice. And I will add to that the need to worship, which usually ends up being the worship of a human being this day, doesn't it? Worship of self. The world we live in today has a lot to say about these concerns, doesn't it? But like the church in Pergamum, the church today lives in a world full of influential voices. Thankfully, the Lord has given us what we need to choose well. What has he given us? Three gifts I wish to share with you this morning, beloved. They are the authority of truth, protective boundaries, and an eternal perspective. First, we need the authority of truth. The Lord has given us a word we can depend on. Verse 12 says this, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. This sword is an image. It's an image that symbolizes the power and right to rule. You see, at that time, the Roman authorities had what was called the right of the sword. That meant they had supposedly the power over life or death. The image of Jesus with the sword, however, tells us who really has the sovereign power over life or death. And there is added significance that the sword is coming out of Jesus' mouth. Why? Because this points to the divine authority of the very word of God. In other words, Jesus Christ is the one who has the final word. Today, it is safe to say people bow to a different sort of authority. See if this sounds familiar. Many today follow the, after the authority of likes, the authority of followers, the authority of influencers. Sound familiar? Add to that, we live in the dreaded age of, well, that's your truth. This is my truth. But that is pluralism. And against the pluralism of our day, Jesus' words of authority stand out in sharp contrast during his earthly ministry. Jesus' words did exactly the same thing. Look with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 through 29. When Jesus was delivering his Sermon on the Mount, the people were deeply affected. It says this, And when Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. There was a self-evident truth in the teachings that set Jesus apart from the other teachers of his day. You see, the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, they liked to debate back and forth and quote their favorite teachers and even argue. But when Jesus spoke, his was not just another voice, yet rather it was a sword that penetrated to the core of human living. Today, the sword of his word still does the very same thing to those of us who read it. First of all, the sword of his truth hones our minds. Romans 12.2 says it this way, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is a mindset. Our mentality has changed from bowing to the opinions of people to having the very knowledge of God himself. This is where the process of all good decision-making begins, when our minds are sharpened 
by the sword of God's word, and we become accurate thinkers. But right thinking must result in godly convictions. That is why the sword of God's truth also pierces our hearts. Hebrews 4.12 says it like this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's sword exposes us for who we truly are. He strikes us to the core of our being, convincing our minds as to what is true, and convicting our hearts as to what is right. In this way, beloved, God's word prepares us to make our decisions beforehand. We have an illustration of this right in our very passage. In verse 13, it says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. This verse starts and ends the exact same way, that this church lived in the city where Satan had his throne. Some way or another, Satan had a base of operations here, and it was against these pressures that the Lord raised up a faithful leader in Antipas, who was killed for refusing to worship Caesar rather than his Lord. We don't know much about Antipas. What we do know about Antipas is that he made his decision beforehand. You see, the Roman sword was no threat to Antipas because he had already been smitten by the sword of God's truth. How about us? In a world full of competing voices, is it not a comfort to know that there is one true voice that slices through all of the confusion? The authority of God's word prepares us to make the right decision before we are even confronted with the options. However, God also knows that temptations will always remain a threat. That is why we also need boundaries to protect us. You see, the Lord has given us the gift of limitations. Verses 14 and 15 say this, But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to, to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Christ has a criticism for this church. And it is essentially this, you are allowing a corrupting, sinful influence to come inside of my church. And Jesus relates this sin to the Old Testament story of Balaam. The story of Balaam can be found in Numbers 22 through 24. You see, Balaam was a Gentile prophet hired by Balak, king of Moab, to put a curse on the Israelites, God's people. You see, Balak, king of Moab, was scared because Israel was on the way. God had lifted them up out of Egypt, delivered them from bondage, sliced them through the Red Sea, delivered them from various trials, and he was now giving them conquest over evil nations. They had just destroyed the Amorites at God's hand. And now they sit poised at the border of Moab, and Balak is scared and so he says, Balaam, I know you have some pull with the gods. Can you break their spiritual power? I'll give you money. Well, Balaam was greedy. 
and he was in. Long story short, God would not allow this, and he only uttered a blessing through Balaam on Israel. So Balaam's pronouncing these blessings on Israel. Balak is furious, and Balaam is bummed because he wanted his money. And he thought to himself, well, I want my money, and Balak wants their spiritual power broken, and God won't allow me to attack them with a curse. How can I infiltrate them from the inside? I will give Balak advice. Balak, here's what we can do to break their power. Have your Moabite women come in and seduce the Israelite men into intermarriage. That way they will follow after your practices and they will follow after your gods. Well, unfortunately, this is precisely what happened. God protected them and then they allowed that sin to come in. And they married with the Moabite women and God stopped this with a plague that killed 24,000 Israelites. Yet if God hadn't done this, guess what would have happened? Israel would have kept intermarrying with Moab and dispersed into that nation, and they would have been indistinguishable, serving other gods. This is the sin of Balaam, God's people being destroyed from the inside out. The Nicolaitans, we don't know much about. Here's something fascinating, though. The, the Hebrew breakdown of Balaam's name can mean to conquer the people. The Greek breakdown of the Nicolaitans' name can also mean to conquer the people. So it seems that these two teachings are one and the same teaching calculated to destroy God's people from the inside out. See, the problem with Pergamum is that they were allowing the enemy to come inside. Just as Old Testament Israel was in danger of dissolving into the pagan Moabite nation, so God's church was in danger of becoming like the world. You see, if the church becomes compromised, how can an unbeliever be saved by Jesus? And how can a believer grow? I was trying to explain this to my eight-year-old son just the other week. And I told him, well, Jimmy, you see, if the church becomes more and more like the world, and I sort of trailed off. He finished my sentence for me better than I could have. He said, Dad, then why have Christians? That struck me to my heart. My son could see the danger of a church that would lose its identity. And as a dad of an eight-year-old, I'm thinking about one of my most sacred duties right now, which at this season of my life is building Lego sets, actually. And the, these things aren't cheap either. I mean, to purchase a set is a very serious decision. They want how much for that? It's, you know, um, so it takes an investment of money, and it takes an investment of time to build. I know when I get the calluses on my fingers after I'm done. <laughs> However, the result is a specific and beautiful masterpiece. Lego fascinates me. You know why? They have so many unique sets comprised all of the same generic pieces. There is an inherent danger, of course. You know what it is, that if my son isn't careful, and he dumps all of his projects into the same communal Lego bin and they rub it together and the parts fall off, even though I tell him not to. You know what happens week after week, this goes unchecked. All we have left for the, our cost and for our effort is a bin full of common Legos, indistinguishable from anything else. Care must be given to keep each set unique. Otherwise, the value of that set is lost, unable to be retrieved. 
God's word is clear about the conduct of his church. 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16 says it like this, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. You see, in this context, Jesus is talking about not letting the enemy inside of his church. But where does that start? Letting Balaam in, where does that begin? I believe it begins right here with the individual Christian. Can I put myself on blast for a moment? For far too long, I knew exactly what it meant to let immorality in. For many years, I succumbed to the allurement of pornography. And Jesus' boundary line in this area is crystal clear, yet I allowed the fleeting allurement of that temptation to draw me over that boundary line, time without number. You see, private sins are so difficult, aren't they? Why? Because we give in to another temptation to keep it private because we're ashamed That is why I want to exhort anyone in the sound of my voice who may be struggling with a similar sin, please don't keep it hidden. Talk to me about it. I'd be intensely interested. We could go have lunch sometime. Or tell somebody else in the congregation, you know you can trust. Just don't keep it hidden, please. I made that mistake for far too long. And it wasn't until I heeded what the word says in James 5 that the Lord delivered me. See, James 5 tells us, to confess our sins one to another. And it was through the power of my confessing this sin to another brother in the Lord that the Lord pulled me out of that bondage and set my feet on dry ground. Praise the Lord, my chains have been broken. Can I give you another verse that helps me every day when it comes to making choices that honor Jesus? This is a hallmark verse for your memory. Beloved, inscribe this verse on the tablets of your heart. This is a verse for life. It is 1 Corinthians 10.31, and it says this, So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. See, the mistake I used to make is I would ask myself, how close can I get to the boundary line without transgressing it? That is the wrong question. But on the basis of this scripture, on his sword, If we ask ourselves, is what I'm about to do going to promote the glory of God? That will keep us from making a lot of sinful decisions. So what has Jesus given us? He's given us his word of authority, and he's given us protective boundaries. Why does this matter, beloved? Because the choices we make have eternal implications. That is why the Lord knows that we also need an eternal Perspective. Let's look at verse 16 together. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus gives a command to Pergamum to repent of a very specific sin, the sin of allowing the enemy inside. Revelation 19 explains that the sword issuing out of Jesus Christ's mouth is actually his weapon of warfare that he will use to destroy those who have not obeyed his authority. You see, hell is the eternal perspective for anyone who continues to choose their sin 
instead of Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus wants to keep his church pure and he charges us with the responsibility. In Ezekiel 3, 16 through 21, God charges the prophet Ezekiel as a watchman over Israel. You see, God wanted, warned Ezekiel, he warned them that if any should die for sins that Ezekiel had not warned them of, God would require their blood at Ezekiel's hand. I believe in a similar way, beloved. We have been called as a watchman over Jesus' church, and he has charged us with the responsibility of keeping his church pure. If we are not obedient, Jesus will come fix all the problems himself, but with far more drastic results. This reminds me of junior high. When I was 14 years old, I have a memory. I remember my best friend making the football team. And one morning, we were walking through the hallway of school. A fight broke out between two boys. My friend and I stood at a distance thinking, yeah, they're going to get busted. And we didn't do anything about it. Well, guess what? They did get busted because just then, the coach of the football team burst into the hallway, separated them, you and you, to the principal's office. Then he turned around, and you, he pointed right at my friend. He said, you, you should have stopped them before I had to intervene. Now, I was a little shocked at first that he was yelling at my friend, who would have never started anything like that and didn't start it. But the simple fact was the coach had higher expectations of my friend who was on his team. You see, if my friend had broken up the fight, there probably would have been no consequence. The coach breaking up the fight and sending him to the principal's office, for all we knew, those kids could have been expelled. This is why I believe that Jesus is so hard on us for preserving the purity of his church because the stakes are so high. These are eternal souls we're talking about. And we do not want anyone getting expelled on our watch. But praise the Lord for our final verse of today, verse 17, an encouraging verse. What is the eternal perspective for those who have chosen well? Verse 17 says this, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. The ones who made good choices are called conquerors because their decisions are proof positive of an authentic relationship with Jesus Christ. To these Jesus promises gifts of eternal value. The hidden manna, the white stone, there are many interpretations on these. But allow me to focus on just a few nuggets of truth that we can zero in on together this morning that I pray will give us just a little sparkle of what heaven will be like. The hidden manna. You remember in the Old Testament, the manna that came down from heaven that was known as the bread from heaven. What does this make us think of, beloved? John 6, 35, where Jesus declares, I am the bread of life. (laughs) Believers have been made alive by him and they will be forever sustained by him. I love that in heaven, Jesus is the bread that nourishes us and fills our hearts The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not, what? I shall not want, right? 
a white stone, the color alone has significance. White symbolizes purity. Jesus will keep us pure as he is pure. Marvelous thought. In heaven, we will no longer be in danger of sinful, corrupting influences. And we will have a relationship with Jesus that is so intimate, he will give us a new name that no one else will know, engraved in stone for all eternity. We, like Antipas, will find our very identity in Jesus himself, an identity that the world could never take away. What is the gift that Jesus offers to those who obey him? I believe the gift is himself. Do we see this, beloved? The bread of life, purity, permanence. Jesus is the gift. So what have we learned? We live in an age of influence and our choices matter. Discernment is needed. And Jesus has given us what we need to be a discerning people. He has given us the authority of truth that we can know beforehand what our decisions should be. He has given us protective boundaries to preserve our identity with him. And he has given us an eternal perspective to show us just where our choices ultimately lead. What do we do with that? Now what? I have two action items for us, beloved. Let us put these into action starting today and for the rest of our lives. Let us do this together. Number one, let us devote ourselves to the truth of God's word. And number two, let us confess our sins to those who will hold us accountable. The result is that Jesus will give himself as the gift to those who have chosen well. As I invite the worship team to come back up and join us, I just want to end on the exact same psalm that we began with. This is Psalm 119 and verse 30. And the reason that I end with this psalm is that I pray, beloved, that each and every one of us may be able to say these words at the end of this life. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. Would you pray with me? What a privilege it's been, Father, to worship you together like this. We love you so much. Will you help us to remember each and every day that the decisions, starting with today, matter for all eternity? Thank you for saving us with your precious blood. Please help us to live in a way that honors you. In your precious name, Lord Jesus, and for your sake, Amen.